you are listening to Single Serves. My name is Arno Marturet and I am your host. Single Serves is a podcast dealing with design, architecture, business, and city building in which I interview an expert on a specific subject matter. Together, we dive into that topic and challenge conventional thinking in a thought-provoking conversation. I sincerely hope that you will find these conversations as engaging as I did and learn a thing or two in the process. Don't forget to send us your comments, criticism, and praise. To do so, you can email us at hello at rvltr.studio or leave a comment online. You can also subscribe to the podcast on our website at rvltr.studio and follow us on social media under the handle at revelator underscore T-O. It's R-E-V-E-L-A-T-E-U-R underscore T-O. So today I have the pleasure to have Michael Green, uh, principal of Michael Green Architecture um, on the podcast. Thanks, Michael, for being on the show. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about new and innovative uh, integrated architecture practices. So can you start by giving us a little bit of background and telling us who you are and what you do in three sentences or less? Sure. So my firm, MJ, is located in Vancouver, uh, Canada, and we work exclusively in wood and advanced wood structures. Um, We're constantly focused on two priorities in our practice. How do we do better by the planet and how do we do better by people? And what that means by people is social and cultural issues and by planet, it's environment and, and climate issues. And I think we've largely become known for our work in climate, but um, we're also fascinated by the impact we can make on society in other ways, uh, including a, a big one, which is making buildings more affordable to all people. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, your um, integrated architecture practice and what that entails? Yeah, so we... Um, you know, we are connected and work as a uh, design partner to a larger firm called Katera, who are a design-build technology firm um, out of Silicon Valley. Um, our relationship with them is quite interesting. They allow us to explore a lot of innovation issues and a lot of technological uh, uh, innovation issues. Um, and they also allow us to have a, a really close partnership with a, a structural engineering firm called Equilibrium, who we work and share an office space with an equilibrium we've worked with for 20 years and they are in my mind the finest wood engineers in north america um, and that really allows us to practice in a kind of different way than a lot of practices where we really are um, thinking um, and working directly day in day out with those that build buildings as well as um, really getting into the meat of how buildings are built so how did that uh, partnership specifically between you and katara come about so, and uh, can you also speak to its benefits? Yeah, sure. So, so Katera is a five-year-old company now with a lot of ambition about the you know changing the industry. It's an industry that really hasn't seen change in a century. We do we build buildings effectively the same way today as we did a century ago, and and in fact, if anything, we've gotten slower at building buildings rather than faster. And buildings have become more expensive and arguably not as well built. Um, and so. You know, that's got to change on all levels. And Katera has been focused on that. And early in their start, they invited me to basically act as an advisor to the company. And over time, as I got to know their ambition, I started to really think about the ambition we had at MGA. And that's that we love making buildings. We love working with our clients and with our communities. But we, we see our impact often as just one building at a time. But to fix big global issues, we need to think 10,000 buildings at a time. And as architects, we traditionally struggle with that idea. We want to be very particular to a place and a purpose. And we struggle to think about 
addressing big systemic change issues. And, and, and we struggle with that because we're often very small firms. But a firm like Katera was able to raise a significant amount of money, you know, a billion dollars, um, to make this change possible. And so as I started working with them, I realized that a partnership would be hugely important to realizing this dream of making a big impact, um, again, both from a planet point of view, environment and climate, but also from a, a social point of view and affordability. Um, and so two years ago, we decided to join Katera as a financial partner. Um, and, uh, and now we call ourselves a design partner. Um, much of our work currently is not for directly for Katera. Um, but you know, we, we do some projects for Katera and we do many projects for that are independent of Katera. Um, but more and more and more, obviously we want to see how we can make a, make a difference in the world by supporting Katera's ambitions. So you alluded to the fact that we still build the same way we did a hundred years ago and arguably it's become even slower and more expensive, which I think is a fascinating um, proposition to, to address. And uh, you probably know him. I had Andrew Waugh on this podcast a while back and he and I were discussing about the fact that every, pretty much every building that's being built the traditional way is a highly customized, very expensive proposition that takes years to build. Um, which is the equivalent in the car world of a customized vehicle that you're going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to have every detail thought about very carefully. And, um, and I was asking him the question, why can't buildings be more like cars, meaning that they're mass manufactured, but also to some degree customizable and designed in such a way that they still respond to the needs of 90% or 95 or 99% of the people uh, that use them? And, uh, and I'd like to have your thoughts on this, uh, this metaphor and kind of this idea of changing the way, changing the way architecture is, is built. Yeah, I actually use you know, a couple of things. First of all, Andrew is a really close friend of mine, so we talk about this kind of thing a lot. And, and um, I often use an analogy just that you're using. I, in fact, I, I gave a talk for Architectural Record in New York where the opening line in the talk was, um, I went down to buy a car the other day, and they didn't have it at the dealership, but they rolled out the drawings, and I looked at it and said, yeah, this looks great. And I, turned to the, the guy, the salesman, and said, uh, is this the car I'm going to get? And he said, well, probably, but the designer is still changing his mind. And I said, well, when can I get this car? And he said, um, he said oh, you can, you can get it right away. And I'm like, great. And he said, yeah, what we do is we're going to drop off a whole bunch of boxes on your front lawn, and then we're going to send a team over, and they're going to get to work starting to build your car. And I said, that seems kind of crazy, but like, how long will that take? And he goes, well, I don't really know. But, you know, it depends because... You know, sometimes when we're building it, the guy that's put in the muffler and drills a hole in the steel chassis in the wrong place, and we have to get an engineer out to rethink it. And, and you know, then the guy putting the leather in is on top of the guy putting the electronics in, and they can't fit, or, or the guy doing the, you know, the engine gets sick, and he takes off two weeks, and the whole project stops. And, and, and I said, okay, so you, you can't tell me how long it'll take, and what about how much it'll cost? And he said, oh, well, that I can tell you. It's going to be $30,000, and then when it's finished, I'll tell you what the rest will cost. <laughs> And, and, you know, I go through this whole story standing on stage in front of a lot of well-known architects and, and they're kind of in the beginning listening to me like, what's this crazy person doing talking about this stupid car he's buying? And then, of course, they realize this is exactly the way we've been building buildings for centuries. And the obvious answer is we need to move into, you know, the modern world. We're the last craft-based industry, major craft-based industry, the building industry. And the biggest resistance to change, I think, is ourselves. I think we are the problem. And I think the way we educate architects is the problem. And I think the tendency we want to look to others and say, why are you not solving this? This is our problem to solve. We are the largest industry on the planet. 
uh, the most impactful industry on environment on the planet. And we as architects have sort of abdicated our role of, global lead, of globally leading conversations about change. And the change that's most important to us is when you move into a factory setting, you not only reduce the price of a building, you create more sense and assurity on the timeline of how long it'll take to build a building, but you also dramatically change the amount of waste produced by making a building and, improve, and can therefore improve the environmental performance of the building. So when you go to a construction site, you know, construction waste itself is a huge component of, of our landfills all over the place. And it's because we are sloppy in the way we design where, you know, when the contractor's building, they take the two by four and they cut off, you know, eight inches off the end and throw it away. When you design um, a building to be manufactured, just as a car to be manufactured, it means you're designing to eliminate waste. And you're doing that not because of environment often, you're doing that just because in manufacturing, that's how you make a product more cost-effective and ultimately you make more money. But the net benefit is you actually end up with that, using far less resources, you're becoming more efficient in the design process and determining how to create products that, are, that have no waste. And that's essential, an essential part of the environmental impact of the, of the way we approach things. But it's also an essential part of the people side of how do you start to roll out many, many, many buildings. So the reason when I gave that talk in, in New York, I often think that if I'd started by saying in the next 10 years, all of you will be designing buildings that are built in factories, the audience of architects would have been appalled because we've been trained to think that something that is mass produced can't be good design. We've been trained to think that we have to spend endless hours on the detail around the door frame um, because that's part of good, great design. And it is. But there's nothing to say that those great design thoughts can't be applied to a new forum where it actually reaches more people. Design should not be the realm of the elite. It should be accessible and affordable to all people because the vast majority of certainly homes in North America are not designed by architects, but could be. And the big shift in the factory, and when I talk to the audience, you know, as I said to them, if I had started by saying you design a factory, you would have said I was crazy and you would have you know, truthfully shut your mind off because that's the way our industry has been doing this for a long time. But once you hear the story of what the way we build through this ridiculous boxes on the front lawn story, you start to realize that, you know, a Porsche 911 was designed to be built in a factory and it's a masterpiece. Or a 1959 Land Rover is, in my mind, a masterpiece of design. And these were all built for mass production. And so it is our neglect that we have waited a century to reinvent our industry and take leadership as a voice of change as architects to be able to deliver buildings that are better for people, better for planet. So you've alluded to uh, a big part of the problem being the education of architects. What would you change in the way they're trained to address that issue head on? So I think there's two parts to this. I think that we are stuck in a kind of period of theory in architecture that's about form, that's about surface, that's about, um, but not about meaning. We don't dig deep into the concept of meaning of what we do. The meaning of what we do is whether we transform people's lives through the way we build a building. Does it spiritually enrich them? Does it make their daily chores easier? Does it transform the quality of their life? Does it make their life better and happier? Those are the sources of meaning of what we do. Designing a door frame for 20 hours is not probably going to change the meaning of somebody's life. And so where we spend our time, energy, and resources in thinking about design and its impact, I think is more about in design school engaging other disciplines, getting to know a wider group of people, expanding the curricula to include as many other disciplines as possible rather than architecture, 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 
And I think it's about the fact that we are here to serve others. This is a service industry and we are in service of others. And we need to expand, return to a kind of renaissance level of teaching where we need to be, you know, well-versed in sciences, well-versed in humanities, um, because these are the people we ultimately serve. And that are a huge amount of our um, teaching should be about actually understanding the scale of global problems, right? Um, because what we do is we take a lot of really amazing students with amazing talent to enter architecture school with really great values that want to do good for the world. And we pop them out the other end and convince them that the success in our profession is ending up designing multi-million dollar homes for celebrities um, or designing, you know, that one a million art gallery that you would dream to be able to design. And the truth is because that's our aspiration, the 90.99.9% of buildings are neglected and our world doesn't get better. We just get a few really nice art galleries. Um, what we want is people to come out of architecture school and see a whole different path and definition of what success and what we do looks like. And you know, one of the initiatives that we specifically are taking around this concept, uh, not at an education level, but it's how to create a different beacon of what success looks like for architects is we're creating in the process of creating a global award. And it, you know, if you think about it, the global award for architecture today is the Pritzker Prize, which is a you know, obviously a tremendous accomplishment. It's a lifetime achievement for predominantly, historically, predominantly, you know, the powerhouse firms of the world. Mm -hmm. It's, it, when those firms are successful, they tend to just continue doing what they do. Um, instead of treating that award as a mantle to try to heal or improve the profession of architecture. So to, to address that, we're creating a, a People and Planet Award that will actually, you know, I'm hoping will be a million dollar prize a year to the firm, not the individual. Architecture is not an individual sport, it's a team sport. Um, the firm that um, demonstrates greatest impact to humanity through design for people and planet, mostly in the developing world, where people actually are in greatest need. Solving climate isn't gonna be done by a really nice building in downtown New York, it's gonna be by solving 100,000 buildings in India. Um, mm -hmm. These are the issues that our profession has to shift as the aspiration of what success looks like. The Pritzker will remain, it's an important thing, I don't want to be hard on the Pritzker at all, but we need another beacon for young people to realize what success looks like and let them chase it and let's honor those people that are spending a lifetime trying to make that impact happen. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, it's very aspirational too. If you know, if you want a couple of nominations for that award when it finally comes out, let me know. Um, and the, the Pritzker, I think, is just a, a symptom of the problems, it's not, it's not a, a cause of it, so... Uh, yeah, I think your vision for architecture is great. So you said uh, a few questions ago that you thought, you know, in the next 10 years, most architects would be designing prefab architecture, prefab buildings. Um, what, what do you envision architecture to, to look like in the next few decades as we go through that transition and, uh, and people like you and, and many others start to shift the way they practice architecture? Well, what's hard is that we have to give up some of our notions of what success looks like and move to an idea um, that collaboration is this generation and collaboration, I mean, real collaboration, giving up the ego of what we do, um, which is really hard for us. We're like totally built for ego as architects, myself included. We're all terrible about it. But, but the truth is we are going to only solve these big problems by collaborating. And that includes being open to new models of project delivery. That includes you know, really digging deeper into how you do design build well, working directly with contractors and, you know, creating really strong bonds where 
contractors understand the importance of design, we understand the importance of constructability and, and cost. Um, changing, um, you know, to working in factory settings means developing a relationship with the factory. It means starting to go back to the era where we actually invented products, not just catalog shopped for products as we do today. Um, that we actually see flaws in, what, in the things we're building with and we actually engage those that can help us actually fix those flaws. Um, you know, I think I, I want to believe that this is possible with a wide range of types of firms. I, the last thing I want to see is, is just a whole bunch of big firms. Um, I think there's a place for big firms, but there's a really important place for small and medium firms as well. But those small and medium firms have to find their partnerships too. They have to go out to the industry and look for places where they can engage small local, you know, prefab folks that are interested in um, growing their business and create partnerships and collaborations. It's a new way of delivering architecture and it's a bit scary, right? Anything new is a bit scary. But if we don't do this, those industries will grow up around us without architects involved and design will matter less and society and culture will be impacted. And it's our job to move with the times. I often think I look at the, you know, I look at a Lucan building who I love and a concrete or a Corbusier um, building that we all studied in school. And I think if these guys were building today, what would they be doing? They sure wouldn't be building in concrete for that's for one. They'd understand, you know, it's massive carbon impact. They would absolutely be embracing, you know, the most progressive technologies of offsite construction. Um, and they'd still be building masterpieces um, because they were looking for, you know, the innovations and impact of their generations. Um, and all of us have a role in doing that in our generation. So can you talk a little more about your partnership with Katera and um, how that impacts the way you practice architecture? So, so more and more what we're doing is, um, you know, Katera's built the largest CLT cross-laminated timber factory in the world in Spokane, Washington. And um, it's, you know, what we're working on is a sort of variety of ways to grow the carbon neutral industry around embodied carbon by using mass timber. And to do that, it's a really interesting balance because for us, we're a design firm and we get involved in a project, we tend to design the project. I want, it, with Katera, we do a little bit of that, um, but we tend to do that more with our clients, like a Google client or somebody. Um, with Katera instead, what we want to do is actually provide technological support for other designers to, to shine, to let their designs become successful using CLT. Um, and for us, just because we do have the, the, the history and the experience over the last 15 years of doing this, to be able to give them support, not you know, to be the backdrop support for them, not try to steal their limelight. Um, and so with Katera, we're really trying to do that. We're trying to build up this expertise to support other architects and engineers in the same way, let other engineers and architects lead designs on projects where we can support them and see them using the material, but even more so starting to get them involved in the process of, of um, you know, full um, you know, systems built buildings, um, offsite built, whatever we call them. Um, and so that's, been, that's where we are right now. We're in this kind of phase of trying to create um, a new way for others to work and, and build the expertise to allow that to happen. It's still early days, but that's, that's the goal. And what's interesting for us is it really means we're needing to, to some degree to remove MGA um, as a design firm from that conversation to make sure that others feel safe to bring their design 
ideas and and understand that we're only here to support, not to not to not to step on toes. Yeah, it makes total sense. So for uh, listeners that may be interested in a lot of whom are architects, um, what uh, what can they do to get involved and, and start kickstart the process of transforming the way they practice? Yeah, so I mean, I think one thing they can do right out the bat is feel free to reach out to us, and we'll connect dots if they're interested in working in CLT. You know, I'm a fan of the entire industry. There's other good players in the industry. Obviously, we work closely with Katera, um, but they're all good. Um, we're happy to help point folks to architects to um, um, to the key people that they need to make their projects successful. Um, same thing with clients when we do the same. It's it's really a, a kind of networking um, process for us um, to help people, you know, land at the right place. I actually kind of call it a concierge service. It's a little bit like a concierge at a hotel if you call you call us or if you call, uh, you know, Katera, um, you'll be sort of ushered through a process that's tailored to your needs of how your, your project can be most successful. And, um, and I think, I think that's really the right way to, you know, for us to be handling it. Each year we're going to mold this Katera model and, you know, and make it and refine it. Um, but I think it only happens if the industry across the board and architects across the board are excited about it and understand it and feel supported and not challenged, right? We don't want to take work away from people. We want to actually do the opposite, create more opportunity, and most importantly, do it to encourage a carbon-free future for all of us. That's great. Uh, do you have one, uh, one last piece of advice for maybe young architects who uh, are starting out or just a few years in their, into their careers and want to, want to maybe take a more innovative approach to, uh, to building a great career? Yeah, so I, I guess there's a few things I often say to young uh, architects. One is, um, you know, and these are cheesy things you hear a lot, but authenticity matters. For me, I, I came from a background of swinging a hammer, being a carpenter, and being a big climber and backcountry guide. And, and those two things, for me, have informed my career more than anything. Um, I think it's really important to take the things you love and, and embrace them outside of architecture because they will find their path back into informing who you become as an architect. I think the worst thing you can do is only commit to architecture, which is so often the case and you become stale. And, uh, and so, you know, I really encourage people to live the most broad and adventurous life possible and to dig deep into things of meaning, um, to give up their time to volunteer and be part of other aspects of society, because again, it'll, it'll change and shape who you become as an architect. Um, and then the last piece I just often say is be patient and kind to yourself. I think, we put a lot of pressure on young, art, young architects to come out and feel like they've got it all figured out. They know who they are and what kind of designer they are. And it's, I don't think I figured out who I was as a designer until I was 34. And by then I'd already designed huge airports by myself. Um, but I, I didn't feel that inside. And just, you know, I think it's really important to know as a designer, you will find your rhythm and your voice, not on someone else's schedule, but you're on your own and don't give yourself a hard time because you don't feel it yet. You will feel it eventually if you just keep going. That makes a lot of sense. And there's so many uh, parallels to my own personal experience that um, I can personally relate to and what you said. So I think that's fantastic advice. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you very much for your time. I think it was a very interesting interview and I'm particularly excited about your very positive and purpose-driven approach to being an architect. I think it's all too rare in the industry. So thanks again for being on the show and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Cheers.
Hey Arno here. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you'll come back for more. Please share with your friends and colleagues and remember to subscribe on our website at rvltr.studio. Until next time, ciao!